If you have your Bible with you this morning, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bible, open me to Mark chapter 12. Um, this is right in the midst of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We see in, um, in Mark chapter 11 that Jesus, as he comes in, um, he comes in a, in a wild way on a colt of a donkey and is praised and people are excited. Uh, many people have ideas that this is the warrior king that has come to deliver God's people from the throes of the Roman government um, and to liberate them. Uh, other people are hoping that they will then get the benefits of being close to Jesus. And so there was a big party when Jesus came in. Um, but what we see happening um, moving into Mark chapter 12 is that Jesus then comes in uh, at the end of Mark 11, overturns uh, money changers in the temple. So it's like this big um, county fair where they're swapping and selling animals at a, at a very um, marked up price to take advantage of the travelers who have to have these animals to give their offering um, as they come together for the Passover. And so they're taking advantage of people. Jesus comes in, starts thrashing the table, um, chasing people out with whips, and tells them, hey, my house is a house of worship. In that moment, Jesus is not only taking authority as um, God's representative, but he's also claiming to be God himself. That's a problem for Jewish people and a possible problem for Roman people. So it's a big issue. And so they come and they, uh, they, they start challenging his authority at the end of Mark chapter 11. At the end of Mark chapter 11, um, the, the, the Pharisee, or excuse me, the scribes, the chief priests, and, uh, and the leaders, the elders of Judaism come to Jesus and start try, uh, trying to challenge his authority and to basically trap him up to get him in trouble so they can get rid of him. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. And so Jesus gives them a story at the beginning of Mark chapter 12 telling of a man who owns a vineyard and leases it out to people to run and take profit from what is raised in the vineyard. And then he goes and basically talks about how every time that he, the, the landowner sent someone to collect the taxes, that the people would beat them or shame them or murder them. And by doing so, they were um, disgracing this landowner. And then finally, the landowner decided to send his own son to go and collect the debt that was owed to him. And they killed him. And Jesus then told them that, hey, the people uh, in this story, essentially, that's you. And you're not the first ones. That every time God has sent a messenger to his own people to help them change their heart, their mind, and their direction back towards God's kingdom, they've been put to death. They've been shamed. They've been ridiculed. And so now we're picking up with um, another group of people trying to come and trap Jesus up. Just to be very clear, this next passage, verses 13 through 17, is about the importance of understanding that, that the government has authority and that the government has authority because it's been established by God for the purposes of God, but that also we have responsibility to God as God's people. And so that is part of it, but there's a deeper issue going on here that I don't want for us to miss today. And here's what it is. That Jesus exposes hypocrisy and he reveals the motives of the heart. The why behind what we do. And so we're going to explore that today. We're definitely going to talk about the tension between, you know, the way of God and his kingdom and um, the way of government and how that interacts and how do, how do we make peace with that and how do we live under that. But beyond just that primary teaching, there's more going on here as Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy in these people's hearts. So mind you, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders are sending to him now um, in verse 13, we'll just pick up here. And they sent him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. So here's the motive. I, I want to build this picture for you. You know you're in trouble 
when the extreme left wing and the extreme right wing partner together to try to dethrone you. Okay? I mean, we, we can understand that in our own culture. When the left wing and the right wing are united for a cause, that, that's something. So the Pharisees are the right wing law keepers. Uh, to the extreme, there's, there's a part of Pharisees called zealots that would even scratch off the emperor's face from the coins because they didn't want to acknowledge any sort of loyalty to the emperor. They wanted separation from the Roman Empire. And so you have the Pharisees who were big time right wing. They wanted separation from government. They wanted small government. They felt like they could rule themselves to an extreme. Some of them thought that, hey, religion can take care of all this stuff. We don't need any government. Then you have the Herodians who are benefiting greatly from big government. They loved the Herodian dynasty. They loved Caesar. They, they were Jewish, but they, man, they worked well in the government, profiting from it. It gave them a certain area of authority, and they loved it. And so these two groups, sound like any groups we know today, partner together to come try to trap Jesus in his words. They're trying to trap him, catch him, so they can arrest him and ultimately destroy him. So let's pick up. In verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now I understand some of you actually had this question about our taxes. Was it really legal? We know the laws that were formed in order to do that. Um, if you think you can get around it, I encourage you to look up a guy named Wesley Snipes who believed that he didn't have to pay any taxes, and so he went to federal camp called prison for several years. But I, I want to go back. At the end of verse 14, it says, or excuse me, end of verse 13, they try to trap him in his talk. The word literally is like an animal trap, like a bear trap, that they're baiting him, hoping he'll take a step and they'll close in on him, and they'll get him. It's like a landmine. They're setting before him a landmine, that hoping that they'll, he'll travel in, step on it, and boom, capture him. And they use really nice words. We know that you're true. So they're, they're saying with their words, we believe you're true, that you're at least sent by God. We believe you're true. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, and it literally means, it's a Hebrew phrase, you do not look on upon another person's face. They're saying, hey, you're true, you obviously know what's going on, you're not a people pleaser, and so you're not trying to enforce anyone's policy, so please help us understand what it is that we're supposed to do. That's the way it's coming off, but Jesus, being God and man, discerning, catches on to what they're doing. They're acknowledging this. This is nice talk. Uh, we fluff people differently now, the way we speak to people and say nice things like, wow, I can tell you're a brilliant guy and very successful at what you do, right? But that's essentially what they're doing here to Jesus. These two groups that are from opposite ends of the spectrum are coming together, trying to trap Jesus, appealing to his quote-unquote authority that they believe he has so that they can trap him and get him overthrown. And quite honestly, it's a yes or no question. Should we pay taxes or should we not? Yes or no? And to give you a little idea, if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then that will alienate him 
from the Jewish people who are very extreme in their belief that there's, we won't even acknowledge the government. And to be fair, the emperor was made out to be like a deity. And so there was some cause for concern of being full in on government because essentially there was a practice of emperor worship. And so there was some merit in that question of like, hey, what are we supposed to do with all of this? So do we pay our taxes? If he says yes, then they can come in and say, well, see, he's trying to get you to worship the emperor. But if he says no, then he gets in trouble with the Roman Empire. See, this guy is trying to cause another uprising that will then bring disunity in the Roman Empire, which that is not what they want because a couple years before that, there was a Jewish revolt that had to be quelled, and it looks poorly on the governor. And so when Jesus is in this position to answer this question, it really is a pretty big trap. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, he's in trouble with the law. If he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, then he's in trouble with some of the Jewish people. And they could then start making an argument that he is blasphemous because he's trying to get people to worship the emperor. So that in and of itself is pretty tricky, but there's more going on in the motive of their hearts. And so verse 15 says, but knowing their hypocrisy, and just so you know, hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not even confirm. So claiming to have or believing in and living out certain moral standards, but you yourself do not live it out, that's hypocrisy. And so Jesus, knowing that both groups have their own opinions and are living their own way, but he acknowledges that, hey, they don't believe I'm true. They don't care if I care or not about other people's opinions. They're only caring about their own purposes, their own desire, because Jesus is disrupting the purposes of their life. For the extreme religious person, they're banking their salvation on their ability to maintain and keep religious behavior up to par. For those who are not, uh, for, for the other side who love the government, he's threatening to overthrow the government by which they are making their money on. They're both coming with motives to try to trap him because it's within their best interest for Jesus to go away because when he comes in, because he is who he says he is, he disrupts everything. And ultimately, it's for good, but it may not always be comfortable. So knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which is a a, a coin worth one day of wage. And a denarius has the face of the emperor on it. He says, hey, bring me one day of wages to look at it. And they brought one. So obviously, they weren't so bought into um, being opposed because they were easily able to find a coin with the emperor's face on it. So, I mean, that right there exposes their hypocrisy, that they're really not that concerned about it. They're just trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to trap him in his words. And so they easily provide and show this one coin. And he asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were amazed by him. They were stumped by him because his answer disoriented their plans. It shifted it. It broke the focus of what they were trying to accomplish. They were trying to overthrow the momentum that Jesus had built, 
They're trying to expose him and embarrass him and do away with him, which ultimately they do, but they don't have the final say. He does eventually get arrested. He gets put to death, but God does not allow death to have the final say, and so Jesus powerfully is raised from the grave. But as we're seeing here, we're seeing this building up that the motives of their heart to get him in trouble is to protect their own kingdom. So the first thing we can observe here is that hypocrisy occurs when we seek first our kingdom instead of God's kingdom. The motivation, the why behind hypocrisy, both here and in general, is when we're seeking our kingdom, our preferences, our desires, we will diminish what it means to love God and follow God to elevate our own preferences. And so we take our preferences to God in hopes that he in hopes that he molds himself to who we want him to be as opposed to going to God and allowing his character and his person to affect us. And Jesus is exposing this. And I was thinking about it a lot this week. I met with a new friend for several hours this week and he was telling me about his journey how he went from speaking everywhere and writing books and all that to his life falling apart in a very fast manner. And he was speaking of his own hypocrisy and his own desires to build his own fame and his own kingdom to the point of where he was ignoring God's word and God's call. And I'm a part of, we're part of, the church is a part of an organization called Acts 29, and I lead out pastoral care for Houston. I help make sure our pastors have the resources they need to get the care they need. And so I was very curious talking with this guy. And as we spent like three hours together at lunch talking and praying and learning, and hypocrisy was a big deal. He was preaching one message and then living another. And so we're not immune from it. We can look at people in the Bible and say, man, those Pharisees or those Herodians or those scribes, but I'm guilty of hypocrisy too, of believing one standard, even teaching one standard, but then giving myself permission in another direction. And thank God for Jesus. Because Jesus stands in that gap. Jesus fills it in and covers it. Jesus calls us and invites us to more. But when we're going to God and spending time in God's Word, our hypocrisy is exposed. And I think for many of us, that's why we avoid spending time with God and engaging in real biblical community with each other. Is as long as we can live giving an appearance of faithfulness, we don't want to let other people in because then they might come in then we might have a responsibility to them as well to call them to more of grace and more of Jesus. The more we spend time with Jesus and hang out with Jesus, He does draw this stuff to the surface. Our materialism and our vanity and our judgment and our unforgiveness and our racism and our, our pride. But I think we have it messed up here, friends, because the Gospel is not a Gospel of retribution. Meaning that when we come close to Jesus, He's not looking to punish. He's looking to heal. He's looking to deliver. He's looking to set free, to liberate. Yet when we come to Jesus and we're bringing our judgments and our preconceived notions and want His will to bend to our will, our hypocrisy is exposed. That's what's happening in this exchange with these guys. They ultimately wanted him to go away so they can have what they want to have. I don't think we're that, all that different from these religious people. I know I'm not. 
Jesus, his heart breaks for those who are far from him that are lost. So because of that, ours should as well. We should have a passion for prayer because our Lord had a passion for prayer because that's the only place where our kingdom alignment can really happen. And our souls can be set free and liberated. But hypocrisy is occurring and the motive behind it is because we want our kingdom. And we want Jesus to bless our kingdom and we want Jesus to give permission for our kingdom. But His kindness leads us to repentance. And as I was talking to this new friend, the pride and hypocrisy that was infiltrating his heart and his life led to a deep confusion on which kingdom to build because they were so blended in his mind and heart. And exposed my own heart. See, these men are teaching and trying to trap Jesus to the law and he immediately speaks back to the heart. Show me the coin. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Well, Caesar is in power right now and gives you this money to spend and has services that you utilize, then pay back what you're told to pay back. But also, give God what God requires as well. Because ultimately, one thing these men are forgetting, maybe some women, is that all authority is created by God and for God. That's the second thing. Any form of authority or government that is put in place is given to us by God. He begins by establishing the first authority in the home. The family is the first created authority that God has given. God then gives a created authority at that time in the temple, but then also now in the church. So his authority is then given through those in whom he places in leadership. And he calls and he sends to have authority. But he is also entrusted and given the government either as a blessing or as a corrective. But it's still sovereignly point, point, uh, placed and positioned because of God. And so as believers, we cannot ignore government or live outside of government. But we cannot hope in government to be our God. That's not its purpose. Quite honestly, when people are upset about politicians, I tell them that's an invitation to pray. Perhaps we're being corrected. Perhaps God is being overly merciful in showing to us clearly that that is not where we should put our ultimate hope. Amen? So it's not advocating that we don't engage or that we don't submit to the laws of our land. And there are ways that when the laws become oppressive or harmful that we can speak out especially in a democracy. But at the same time, we cannot put our ultimate hope in a government. And so the Herodians, they were missing it because they, they loved the benefits. As long as they would bribe and pay and do what the Romans said, they had free reign to do what they wanted to do. They were extremely liberal and wanting big rule and government over them. The Pharisees, quite honestly, wanted to ignore the government and do their own thing. But really, they're, they're both missing it because all authority is given by God. And in fact, in Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bible, you can go there with me for a minute. Romans 13, 1 through 7, there is something that, that Paul writes specifically to the church in Rome about authorities placed over us. And I want to start with this premise. If you are unable to submit to the authority that you can see, 
How in the world are you saying that you're submitting to the authority that you cannot see? Beginning in the structure of the home, then in the structure of the church, and then in the structure of the government. If your heart is rebellious towards the authority structures that God has laid out and ordained, then it's hard to argue that you are trusting in the authority of God. That doesn't mean that church people are infallible. That's why Paul gives provision on, hey, if an elder is in sin, two or three of you who are righteous should go and bring his sin before him that he might repent and be restored. So there are provisions. Yes, wives are called to submit to their husbands, but they're not called to be doormats or abused or neglected or viewed as lesser, but to come alongside and help. There are many times where Stephanie is a lifesaver. Most of the time, metaphorically, sometimes, Casey, they're stopping. Hit the brake. And my wife sympathetically pumps the brake on her side. I think we've even talked about getting a driver's ed brake put in there just, just so she can help out. But students with your parents, kids with your parents, that's a God-given authority. And with the law, I know many of us view speed limits as speed suggestions. But there are reasons behind it. There are some laws that are silly. There are some laws that make no sense. But look with me in Romans 13, 1-7. See, I think our problem, first and foremost, is not with government, but with theology. The knowledge of God. And here's what God's Word says, Romans 13, verses 1-7. through Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor whom honor is owed. I know my libertarian brethren are like, well, hmm. Listen, if you are the ultimate authority in your life, that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. I'm grateful that I'm not the final authority in my life. I'm grateful that I have a beautiful wife that helps me and loves me and prays for me and encourages me. And, and when I have no hope, she shares hope. When I lack vision, she shares vision. That bolsters me in, in the authority of my home and calls me and invites me to be a better dad and leader. Confronts me on sin, wins my wins with me. I'm thankful for the elders we have at our church who, when discouraged, they'll come over to my house and pray with our family. When we need counsel, they come and pray over us and seek counsel and then send funny gifts over text sometimes. Who I don't have to, bury, to, to bear this burden alone, but that will come alongside and say, hey, we're with you. I'm thankful for that structure and that, that hope. 
And I'm thankful for the government. I, I, I've been to several countries that are not this country. And as much as we want to complain, we have it really, really good. Because quite honestly, if we're so upset by it, we can then try to get in office and do something about it. And that may be the call for some of you. But this idea of, well, it's either all for God or it's all for country, I think we are broken either way. Some of us neglect government and blow it off and don't see the fact that it's been given by God and maybe it's an invitation to repentance or a sign of His mercy. Or we're so banked on what the government's going to do that we're banking our whole future on it. What are the stocks going to do because of what so-and-so does and how is this going to work and we better get so-and-so in office otherwise it's all going to be done. And abortion will be ended if we elect the right person. That's not true. That's not what's going to end it. What's going to end it is the power of the gospel of Jesus and the church being the church. So Jesus is, is saying, yeah, Pay your taxes to who it's owed. Render to God what is God's. But all authority is God's authority. All of it. Even if it's bad, then it's corrective or refining or sanctifying. And I know some people who want to be skeptics say, well, what about Adolf Hitler? Thank God, God is bigger than our structures and God can end tyranny. And at times He uses people to do so. And at times He uses natural things. That doesn't mean we stand by for injustice or we don't. Stand up for those who are weak. What it does say is, instead of pointing the finger when we think government is bad, perhaps we should look in the mirror and repent. That should offend both parties, by the way. I know some of you are like, well, there's only libertarians and Republicans here. I know for a fact there's not, but I'm not going to point them out because I don't know if y'all are mature enough yet for that. Just to be honest with you, I intend to pastor both parties. But for your safety, for those of you who voted differently, your secret is safe right here for now. We're not there yet. Not yet. We hope to be. But if we're actually going to reach our area with the gospel, then there will be more people who don't vote exactly like us that Jesus loves deeply. So we just got to be careful. Government is not bad, it's a gift from God. A bad government is a rebuke from God. A good one is a grace from God. But none of it is outside, and so we've got to be careful. I've got to be careful. And how at times I can be just roll my eyes apathetic. But rather pray. Pray for those in leadership. Pray for those over us. Ask God to change hearts. Ask God to change our hearts. Because Jesus is being confronted by who's, who do we owe to he gives a very clear answer. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The third thing is this. The gifts that God gives come with responsibility. The gifts that God gives comes with responsibility. Now, this could be a very literal statement by Jesus saying, Pay taxes to Caesar and pay your temple tax, which happens around the time of Passover. But if we look at the narrative of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, he calls us to much more. 
And so I could turn the corner and say, hey, our, our tithe has been low. We've lost some families and our money's going down. I'm not going to talk about tithing. Wherever your heart is, there your money goes. You want to do a heart check? Open your bank statement. That's all I'll say about that. I love you. I'm your pastor. I want us to be a generous church because we serve a generous God. But at the same time, I will do money talks later. So if you want to know ahead of time, actually read your email newsletter and see where we are in the passage. But what Jesus is talking about here is there's deeper responsibility. He's saying, hey, pay your taxes, but you don't have to go all the way and say, I'm going to worship the emperor. So pay the taxes, even though they're calling him the divine emperor. You don't have to give into that. You pay your taxes, knowing in your heart and mind, that's not who I worship or hope in, and give God to what is God, which is the right place of deity, of God, who has purchased us all completely, holistically, fully. We're completely his. He's given his all so that we can have his all. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is yes, we are to obey the government leadership, understanding that if government isn't working in our favor, we pray and we ask and we fight and we trust God is sanctifying. But deeper than that, Jesus is telling them, hey, look, these gifts, there's responsibility involved. There's not just benefits of governmental structures that protect you and serve you and help you without responsibility in return. There's responsibility. If you enjoy the benefits, you pay your taxes. In the same way, a God who gives himself completely to you, who owns all things, who's over all things, the question isn't what should we give to God, it's what doesn't he already have and what shouldn't we give? What should we not give? I think that's where we start. The first thing I talked about was that our hypocrisy begins when we're trying to build our own kingdom than God's. And I think the realignment comes alongside where we say, it's all His anyways. It's about His kingdom. And so then we can come with our yes and our open hands and our hearts open to being transformed because we are loved and we are completely accepted. We have been born again and we have been made new. We are then able to come in and with open hands say, God, the government is what you've put in place I will pay what is due. But you have my all. And hear me, friends. I, the Gospel is one of freedom and of liberation, not a burden. The aim of the Gospel isn't to come lay another thing of go try harder for God, but God's given it all so you can have all of God. So it's more of a question of response, which then we get the word responsibility from. Rather than what's our appropriate reaction. He calls for our worship and for our loyalty, which before Christ died on the cross and rose again, it was impossible. Because our sinful hearts always had a barrier from being able to be right with God. So God did what we could not do through His Son Jesus, becoming sin on our behalf on the cross, dying a gruesome, horrible death, being dead and buried, and by God's power being raised from the dead. And that powerful resurrection is a triumphant illustration that sin no longer has a hold, that death doesn't have the final say, and that Satan doesn't have ultimate ownership on us. And that victory that we have then frees us to give God our yes. 
It frees us to love God and love our neighbors. It frees us to forgive rather than hold a grudge. It frees us to go into hard, awkward conversations, to admit our faults, to ask for forgiveness, to give and receive it, to not just dismiss hard things or blow it off or let it go, but to confront that which means come face to face, to give and receive grace. So many times we read the words of Jesus as, well, he's just plas- you know, laying on more and more for us to do. No, no, no. He's already done it all so that we can now live as a thank you to him. The gifts that God gives, they do come with responsibility. They do come with responses. See, our generation, we want all the benefits and no responsibility. We see that in dating relationships. We see that with money. We see that with work. We see that at schools now. We want the benefits, but we don't want the responsibility for those benefits. We see that with, with government. We want full protection. We don't want any terrorism. We, don't want, we want good roads, clean water. We want all these things, but we don't want to have any responsibility. The benefits of God, the person of God, comes with acknowledging that we're created in the image of God. Our sin separates us from God, but that God restores us to himself through Jesus. And that comes with certain responsibilities because of our identity. To freely live into, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. God's gifts, they're they're, they're plentiful. And they come with responsibility. I was talking to a friend uh, beginning of last week, and I said a lot of people want the benefit of having a say at church without taking any responsibility. And without taking responsibility to understand where our people are and what's going on in our community and what our needs in the church are, it's super easy from a 30,000 foot to throw stones on what we think the church needs to have happen. But until you get in and get your hands dirty and see the type of hurt and the needs and the the areas of discipleship and the people that are struggling with addiction and with finances, with infidelity, with pornography, until you get in and see that stuff, then it's super easy from the outside to say, here's what's needed. Why aren't you doing this? Do this better. You should be doing this better. But you have to understand, if if you're giving advice without seeking deep understanding, You're doing what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, is you're not delighting in the law of the Lord, you're sitting in the seat of a scoffer. And you're just scoffing. Which is just arrogance and pride. We've been going for the last year of the the leadership pipeline. I was having lunch with another one of my friends this past week who's been going through the pipeline. And I was like, oh man, you need to read that book. He's like, I've been reading 12 books this year. Because we read a book, and then we talk about it, and we process it. And he's like, that's 12 more books than I've read in the foreseeable past. But when this young man comes to me and says, hey, I, I really am sensing this in the community group I lead. I'm sensing this in our church. I'm feeling a little tired over here. Then man, there, there's, there's, he's taking responsibility. Christ Community Church exists to put on a good show on Sunday so that you're entertained so you can have a happier week. Some of you are chuckling because you know that's not our vision or mission. 
We exist to glorify God. Our maker, our creator, our savior, our king. We exist. We're made to, and we will. Whether we obey him or not, he will be glorified. We exist to glorify God. How? By obeying his charge to love him and make disciples. We exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are both growing, so being encouraged to harder things, to discomfort at times, and multiplying. They're sharing the gospel. They're visiting with people who are far from God. They're talking to people on the other side of the political aisle. They're trying to engage with culture in a way that is meaningful and transformational. We exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing, and they are multiplying. The reason we gather on Sunday morning is to give God glory, to enjoy Him, for non-believers to come and check out what God is doing. People who are far from God to realize that, hey, maybe this God thing has more than just attendance at a service on Sundays. Hearing a guy with passion or screaming, depending on how you interpret my voice. I'm smiling. Passion. I don't need another show to go speak at. I used to do that 120 days a year. I want a people on mission with Jesus. People who don't yet know Jesus and are kicking the tires and asking questions and wrestling with doubt in a safe place. A group of people who are praying for people who are far from God, praying for our community, praying for our governmental leaders, praying for our church leaders, praying for churches that are being planted, praying for other churches in the area, partnering for kingdom purposes. The gathering together on Sunday mornings is important because God is worth a corporate group of people giving Him value and worth and giving attention to the things that matter to Him. The gathering is important. It's not because I need a venue to, to talk. If you know me or hung out with me, I talk anyways. A lot. Our worship gathering is a place for us to be engaged by God and engaging God, giving Him His worth and value back in a way that is honoring to Him. That way we're able to obey the great command and love in God and we're able to gather with other people who are wanting to be on mission together. Therefore, we're able to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, And we don't do it alone. So when we say, hey, make coming on Sundays a priority, it's not because we need you to fill a seat. And quite honestly, if you're here just to consume, we need your parking space. We're here to engage with the all-living God who reads through our junk and destroys our kingdom so that His kingdom might be built in our life. So as Jesus is engaging these leaders He's doing so with compassion for their heart where their heart is. He's not just trying not to get in trouble with either side. He's trying to tell them like, look, man, you're both wrong. Pay your taxes and give God everything. But we miss that. Because Jesus exposes hypocrisy and reveals the motives of the heart. We want the benefits without the responsibility, but the gifts that God gives, they come with responsibility. Hey, if you want to lead in our church, love for you to talk with one of us about that. But there's a lot of responsibility the more leadership you take on. If you're going to lead a community group, you're responsible for the primary first level of care for those group of people. Praying for them, discipling, loving, empowering, equipping. And we come alongside and help you learn to do that. If you want to be a deacon in our church, you are taking responsibility to administer 
the things that need to take place so that we can be on mission. And we're starting a deacon process this fall with a handful of men and women. And lastly, if you're called to be an elder, you're called to take not only physical responsibility, but spiritual responsibility for the souls of this church and for the staff. I'm fine. Anybody who calls Christ Community Church home, you're always welcome to reach out to myself, to John Fox, to Rick Bowers, to Angus Firstin Welsh, to Scott Patterson, to Robert Panner, who's an elder candidate. You're welcome to reach out and ask questions. We do that all the time. You can also go to your community group leader and say, hey, what's going on with this? Or what are, we, what are the plans for this? And Community group leaders, if you're here, you can say, I don't know, let me find out, and then reach out. There's probably 100 and maybe 140 people in here today, give or take, maybe a little more. A few of you are pregnant, so we'll take it. We'll count those. And I guarantee you it's about 140 different opinions. Remember Ed Welch said you can... Sometimes please some people, or you can most of the time please God. Just want you to know we want to please God. And we love you. And so as the lead hypocrite here, I come repenting and inviting you as Jesus exposes your hypocrisy and reveals the motives of the heart. It might hurt because our, our kingdom is our favorite because it's created in our image. But God's kingdom is better. And that's Jesus' heart for these people that are trying to trap him. He, he's not viewing them as enemies that he needs to crush. He's viewing them as people to pray for. And so as we come to the table today to remember the grace of God, let's confess our hypocrisy and say, Jesus, reveal that to me. Liberate me. Show me areas that I'm building my kingdom and not yours. That I might come with a pure heart before you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know that you are already forgiven. The empty grave proves that. You need to live into that. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I want to invite you. The Gospel is ultimately the forgiveness of God through Jesus. That your sins are forgiven because of His life, His death, and His resurrection. You can be accepted by God just by trusting in Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, in your own words, just cry out to God and say, God, I've I failed you, I've ignored you, but I need you. And He will. He will answer that prayer and He will come into your life.